and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ari Bryan, Assistant Professor of History at Vanderbilt University. We will discuss his article, Responsa, which will be published in the Oxford Handbook of Law and the Humanities. So welcome to the show, Ari. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> so as you know, I've long been a fan of your work, and I really enjoyed this article in particular, uh, at least in part because I, I didn't know anything about the subject matter before before reading it. Um, so it, it's a comment on a particular kind of legal document from ancient Rome called a responsa. Um, and, and I, I want to get into more detail about, you know, what a responsa was and, and how they worked. But I, I wonder if you could start by just talking a little bit more generally about Roman law or the Roman legal system. I mean, what did it look like? How did it work? Right? Is it was it analogous in any meaningful ways to the way we think about sort of the law and courts and the judiciary today? Um, and and, and how, how should we think about or understand how the law worked in in ancient Rome? Well, it's a good question, and there and of course there's going to be a lot of variation over time. But if we go back to say the late Republic, which is the period in which Cicero is giving his famous speeches, um, some of which are criminal court speeches, one of which is actually a civil case. Um, I think the thing that we we would most be struck by is that this is not a professional system. There's no law school. There's no training of lawyers. There's no barristers. It's a system that is recognizable insofar as people are settling disputes and accusing each other of things and getting their contracts written. But it all kind of runs on, let's say, the goodwill of elite men. That is to say that there are, there are some elite men in the society who are good at rhetoric and others who are good at what we would think of now as jurisprudence, and people simply defer to them about how best to do these kinds of things. So it's a really amateur-driven system, which is fine until you're beginning to run a very complex society. And when you get to the late Republic, you really do have a complex society, and there begins to be some sense that it needs to be rationalized in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so various people begin to take the initiative. Adding to this, there's also... Um, there's also a tendency in, in Rome, let's say in the first century BC, for the people, the collected Roman citizen body, to pass laws on all kinds of issues that then people have to obey. And sometimes those laws are very unusual, um, land laws, things like this, and they can oscillate in terms of their intentions pretty radically. So, so these jurists who are beginning to see this complex society um, that needs a sort of legal rationalization, though they're not professionals themselves, um, also are contending with the will of the people, and it begins to get pretty messy. Mm, mm. So during the period you're primarily focusing on in in the paper, like what would happen if, for example, I had something that I thought was like a legal dispute with someone else and I wanted to like, quote unquote, bring a lawsuit, right? Is that like something I could do? How would I do it? And like, what would the role of the jurists you're talking about be in relation to whatever it is that I would be trying to do? So this is a really good question. Um, we think that the Roman court system was relatively accessible to Roman citizens, but it's pretty formulaic. So, and, it, and formalistic actually. So what you'd have to do if you decided you wanted to sue your neighbor is you would have to go, first of all, probably to the city of Rome, and you would sit down with an elected official named the Praetor, 
P-R-A-E-T-O-R, and you would complain about what your neighbor had done. And what the Praetor, who was assisted by jurists, would do is begin to kind of turn your narrative complaint into a formal complaint at law that you would then take um, back to your neighbor. You would say, okay, I'm suing you. I've used this little formula. The Praetor's written it up for me. You have to go to court. Um, and then you go, ha- her, you know, you go before the preter multiple times to kind of get the legal issue framed in a proper way. And then, and this is the sort of surprising part, then you would actually both pick a private citizen who you thought could judge the facts of the case, and you would submit to his judgment. Almost always the person who's an elite, of course. Um, but in theory, they try to make lawsuits work, at least on the fiction, that this is a voluntary dispute settlement process that two citizens are undergoing. But once that judge rules, it is final. Now, good luck getting a judgment out of somebody. Of course, this is actually very complicated in a pre-modern world with no sheriffs. But in theory, you could do it. Mm-hmm. So in your paper, you focus, as I said previously, on the responsive, which is like a particular form of legal document, what was a response and like what role did they play in the system that you've been describing? Good question. So a responsa, one responsum is just, it's not even a genre. It's just sort of an answer. It's the same as response in English. And what you would do is you would find a jurist who you thought was competent, hopefully with advice, and you would ask him a sort of pointed legal question. So for example, um, dad died and disinherited my older brother, but he didn't disinherit me. Who's responsible for his funeral ritual? It's a simple question of inheritance. You're asking who's the heir, essentially. And the jurist should know, based on legislation, tradition, the way that things have been done in the past, he should know the right answer to that question. So his response would be, you are the heir, right? responsible for dad's ancestor cult. You're responsible for building the tomb. You're the executor of the estate and so forth. And it was never until maybe the first century BC. So these guys would just answer these questions because people ask them. Um, By the beginning of the first century BC, they start getting written down almost as if they're precedents, but they're not. They're, they're advisory. So I might get one jurist to say X, but my brother might get another jurist to say Y. And the person who's running the lawsuit, in this case, probably the preter or the judge, would have to decide which jurist is better. So they're totally advisory. They're kind of like expert testimony as to what the law is. But you kind of need that in a system where everyone's an amateur. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of ways, the jurists you're talking about sound less like judges and more like law professors. There, there is a really long tradition of what you might call law professors uh, consulting in these cases. It goes back to early modern Germany, but they picked it up from the Romans that, that they are law professors. They're supposed to be experts, but you know, like when you write a brief for the court, um, it's your best guess as to how you think the law should operate. You can't, you can't bind it with it. <laughs> as, as, um, and, but, but if it's the right question for the right, from the, or the right answer from the right person, the judge really does tend to take it seriously. 
Interesting. Interesting. I wonder what Justice Roberts would think about that, you know? Uh, I can't imagine it would go down really well in the modern world, but um, but if you if the, if the modern law professors of the United States were to rally together, you know, you could bring back this kind of uh, consulting role of the law faculty in, in Supreme Court cases. It would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like amicus briefs on steroids or something. So let's let's dig a little bit deeper into what they actually look like and the role that they actually played. So you you start the paper with an example of a particular responsum delivered in a particular circumstance, which is both, I think, beautifully illustrative and also really funny. So maybe you could just describe briefly the circumstance that was sort of at stake and what the jurist did under the circumstances. Well, so it, it goes back to the sort of rough and tumble politics of the 50s BC. And there was a politician named uh, Vitinius who we think actually was, was less hateful than people make him out to be because he keeps getting elected to things. Um, but one day he went to the games and people threw stones at him, right? Which is, which in many ways the people sort of reserve as their right. That if you appear in the theater and they don't like you, they get to throw things at you. So being annoyed by this, uh, as one might imagine, Vitinius went to the Ediles, who are a very odd part of the Roman legal system. They, they really, they regulate markets and public safety. And he said, okay, I'm not going to mess with the basic principle here, right? The people do get to throw things at me, but they only get to throw fruit. That is to say, they only get to throw soft things. So some lad thought, huh, what about a pine cone? It's a pine cone of fruit. It's basically the hardest thing he could imagine throwing at Vitinius that still fell within the bounds of this edict. So he went to Cascellius, who's a jurist about whom we know very, very, very little. And he said, Cascellius, you know, is a pine cone of fruit. And Cascalia says, well, if you're going to throw it at Vitinius, yes. <laughs> the harder, the better. <laughs> the harder, the better. So, um, but that, that is really just the response, right? That, that mm-hmm. little part, right? That one line, you know, if you're going to throw a pine cone at Vitinius, it counts as a fruit. Um, a ruminant animal with these kinds of teeth is not fit for sacrifice. Um, you know, under circumstances A and B, you're the heir to this estate. They're really, really short rulings without a lot of explanation to them. Mm-hmm. And if you can do one that's witty and funny, all the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, h- how many of these responsa have been preserved? And sort of how much context do we have for understanding what they mean. I mean, in a lot of ways, I got the impression that they were almost like, almost had like a parable kind of quality to them in some ways. It's interesting. So I would say, I guess I haven't counted them, but we have the reported opinions of a number of jurists that were combined later in antiquity in the digest. There are many hundreds of them. But I mean, the parable is is an interesting analogy because a parable is a story that has a beginning, middle, and an end that's supposed to sort of speak to some other kind of issue. A responsum, unless you know what's going on, these things are really short. And so it's really hard to actually make details of what they are. It's even harder to figure out the reasoning behind them, right? Why would you say that a pinecone is the fruit? Well, because Vitinius is a jerk is probably the answer. Is there some way to justify this, or is this just a kind of raw um, exercise of juristic authority 
is a question that begins getting asked. Now, as a late reader of these, this is one of the reasons these, this kind of source turns people off is that because there's no context, it's very hard to know what's going on unless you really begin to think like a Roman lawyer, which is not always desirable. Uh-huh. So, so my goal is to sort uh-huh. of think enough like a Roman lawyer that I can explain what's at stake in all of these things, but then be able to step back and show that they're, they're a really precarious way to kind of craft a legal system, right? If you just stack up lots of responses based on personal authority without reasoning through them, it's very hard to go back to them and, and make uh-huh. some kind of sense of your legal history. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and in a lot of ways, it, it, your description of them was like eerily similar to like my understanding of how like the sort of more formalistic writ system would have mm-hmm. worked in medieval England, for example, in the sense that, you know, it's hard to understand what this kind of, as you put it, juristic technology was intended to accomplish in the moment in which it was it was created and and used. I don't know. Is is is, is that a reasonable analogy? And, and and if you don't mind, like I mean that that term, I really liked uh, juristic technology. And I wonder if you could talk about that and kind of what you mean by that in relation to a tool like uh, responsive. Yeah, I guess I guess um, that's a that's a hard question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it for one second. Um, I think in general, one of the really fun things about engaging with alien legal cultures is that you really have to think hard about, um, first, you have to think hard enough about what's going on to decipher the material that then you begin to get a set of toolbox, a set of tools for thinking harder about, about contemporary things, which is for me, sort of the, the exciting thing about all of this, all of this really obscure stuff. Um, as far as technology, I guess, you could think about it as a genre, but it's, it's a genre that really has a particular role in the legal process. And so um, like a writ or like pleadings, um, this is a tool that's designed to guide the ways that disputes are sort of funneled through, or in some cases kept out of the court system. Um, And I suppose to continue the metaphor like a writ or like a pleading, the way you design the tool is going to let some things in and keep other things out. And you can, and you can arrange it in lots of different ways. Um, the, 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 the nature of the tool itself is gonna, is gonna kind of regulate who gets to litigate how and how successful they'll be. If the tool is, if the tool is a really, um, well-documented argument that follows linearly with lots of footnotes, um, that's going to let some people into the system and keep others out. If the tool is a sort of one-off declaration by a jurist, you're going to have the same effect, but it's going to be different people. So how well do we understand the role that Responsa played in the Roman legal system? I mean, you know, to what extent are there still kind of open questions or things that seem like a little mysterious about what was going on? I mean, reading reading your paper, it seemed like in a lot of ways to me, there was there were like legalistic aspects to them, but also like kind of socio-political, more traditional aspects to them as well. And it, it seemed as if there might 
be a certain amount of mystery kind of associated with what they were intended to accomplish and or mean. Well, this is this is obviously something that, that people who are experts argue over. And, and for me, it's kind of neat because for many years, this material was kind of, it's, it's tricky enough that it really only lived in, it was really only studied by lawyers. And so the lawyers put the legal aspects first and kind of let the socio-political aspects fade into the background. And the pendulum's kind of swinging um, over the last 30 years or so. You know, now, now a new generation of people is, is emphasizing the sociological bits as opposed to the technical bits. And we've been doing that for 20 years, but actually what we're trying to figure out now is how, how to weight them. Um, law happens in a contact, and it happens through people, right? It doesn't just happen in the abstract zone that jurists create to think in. Um, but it turns out that these people, you know, though they're upper class aristocrats and embedded in a particular culture at a particular moment, are also pretty careful lawyers. And they really do care about getting certain legal questions right, even if that doesn't comport with what they would anticipate is a kind of optimal social arrangement. So, so figuring out how to weight those two factors across across time, <laughs> um, you know, and to see how they how they change and adapt is is, is a real challenge. Uh, made made even more challenging by the fact that our evidence is always a mess. Um, once you're dealing with something that's 2,000 years old, you can almost be certain that the evidence is not going to be helpful to you. So what happened when different jurists disagreed about what the right answer to a particular question was? Like, sort of, Are there good examples of that taking place? And how are those kinds of disagreements resolved, if at all? It's a really good question. So as we get into the empire, that is into the age of emperors, um, you begin to get juristic tools. So we know that there are the Proculians and the Sabinians. Um, the thing is that they disagree over all sorts of matters, but you can't always tell why. It might just be that they're that they're tribal, um, that they that they find things that lawyers can disagree upon, and so they disagree. Uh, the most famous, perhaps, is actually the age of puberty. So one school says puberty happens when you turn, I don't know, thirteen. The other school says, well, um, human males and females don't all develop at the same rate, so you have to check. Um, that's how you tell puberty, right? It's not a, it's not a round number. It's, it's whatever is that stage of development for this particular person. Now, obviously, this is actually to be of some consequence if you're trying to figure out if you're entering into a transaction with an adult or a child. Um, but they don't resolve it. In fact, um, it sits as a controversy that is irresolvable. Um, for many, many years. Interestingly enough, that's okay. Um, there are people who try in the later period to jump in and say, okay, but we're just taking one side, right? They both have perfectly good arguments, but we're simply taking one. Um, but often they're left to sit as kind of in equipoise, as kind of conflicting positions on how you do the thing right. Uh, and that's a situation I think that that modern people are much less comfortable with. But that's one of the advantages of amateurism, that in fact, you don't have to solve it. Whoever's the judge in the particular case can solve it. Um, but there might, be, there might be two right answers. Um, this, is, this, is, this is actually best captured, not in Roman law, but by the Talmud, um, where Hillel and Shammai are always arguing with one another. Um, 
And God intervenes one day and he says, both Hillel and Shammai are the living word of God. But Hillel's better. <laughs> but that's a sort of that's a sort of fantasy of, of Talmudic rabbis, right? That you actually need the voice of God to intervene to settle these disputes. In point of fact, they can sit they can sit in equipoise for 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 generations at a time, and that's okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, how did the sort of use of responsa? initially developed to the extent that we know and sort of did their kind of social use and function change over time in in ancient Rome I mean were they sort of a juristic technology that was used throughout the kind of ancient Roman period I mean that's a long period of time obviously uh, or did they have greater and lesser degrees of sort of socio-political significance at different points in time? It's a good question. Um, so the, the beginnings, of course, with the beginnings of anything in Rome, you have to speculate. But I think, but I think we're on some okay ground speculating on this. Um, most early, what we would call jurists, uh, were priests, and so they have to they have to rule on ritual matters as to how you do X Y Z ritual properly. This is especially the case in the example that I gave you earlier, which is the, which is the cult of ancestors, which is essentially the law of inheritance. Right? How do you know who's responsible for dad's tomb? But as jurisprudence begins to develop, um, religion and law kind of split apart. They're never, there's never a sort of formal divorce, but one goes in one direction and the other goes in the other direction. So they, they, they move analogously sometimes to the same people. But the interesting story is not really the origins. The interesting story is where this goes from there. And that is that as soon as people know that you're good at giving responses, they want you to gather them all together. And as soon as you know that, that someone is going to gather them all together, you begin to think about them generically. And you begin to actually experiment with genres for making good responses. So as you get into the age of the emperors, first, second centuries AD, people begin to make, I guess let's call them literary responsa. That is to say, they hypothesize someone asking a question that's a good legal question rather than a bad legal question. And there's an aesthetic to this and they give the answer that is the right answer. So um, what would happen if uh, uh, the example I give in the paper is um, a patron writes to his freed slave and says, I grant you Sempronius the right to give away your property in any way you wish. This shows up in Paul's book of responsa. Paul is a second century jurist. Um, and Paul says, so, the, so the, the letter is quoted in Paul's responses. And then there is someone who says, and I ask, right, does this mean that this freed slave could pass over his patron's child in his inheritance? And Paul responds, no, of course you cannot do this. Now, what you need to know then, if you're going to understand this, why is this an interesting thing to read, is that there's a whole bunch of legislation on what freedmen can do with their property. There's also a really serious moral expectation that if you free someone, that they cut you in when they die. And how could you imagine a situation in which you would you would allow someone to dispose of their own property as you wish, but that person would be so ungrateful that they would pass over their own patron's son. But what's interesting about this as a piece of literature is that this is completely hypothetical. No one's actually asked Paul this question. 
He's just made it up because it's a good question for lawyers. Now, modern law professors do, right? You write fact patterns and issue spotters for student exams. And I, I don't think they're probably as good as the Roman jurist ones. But, um, but, but as it becomes, becomes self-conscious that people are going to read this, all of a sudden there's pressure to create them in ways that are readable. Um, so, you know, you publish the book Scalia dissents, guess what? Scalia dissents differently, right? It becomes, it becomes sort of self-fulfilling that, uh, as soon as this becomes a popular genre, uh, people are going to read it with different eyes. And what that means is it becomes a almost entirely hypothetical mm-hmm. affair. It becomes, it becomes law professor publishing rather than actually helping clients, although people probably helped clients too, but they don't take as much pride in it. They take pride in being witty and thoughtful and and giving the right answer in a pithy way. Yeah, I mean, it was weird to me how the way you described the sort of social use of responses, they became they became increasingly sort of academic. And you even refer to what you call um, esoteric responsa, which I was like, it was I was like, that was so law professor like in a weird way. I, I wish I could take credit for esoteric. It's um, it's the term comes from Fritz Schultz's uh, history of Roman legal science, and I think it's absolutely spot on, um, both in its original sense, right? Um, in Greek, it means inward looking, um, and in the sense of, well, frankly, a bit a bit unusual and hard on the ears of the un, the uninitiated. Yeah, could, could could you describe one of those? Which the one of the esoteric responsa. Well, um, I mean, the example I just gave is, is I would think, fairly, fairly esoteric. Um, but but it, it is esoteric in the sense that um, no one who isn't deeply immersed in the culture of Roman law could actually figure out what's going on, right? If you say, Brian, you're allowed to give away any property you wish, and then I turn around and say, actually, Brian is not allowed to give away any property you wish, um, it doesn't make any sense. It just seems like I'm contradicting myself. But if you if you're immersed in the system, you'll know why these two propositions can work together. Um, why I can say Brian, give it away in any way you want, but not that way, because um, you're imagining in your head if you're if you're um, if you're habitual if you're habituated in these systems, you're imagining that there are 500 exceptions you have to look for, um, 15 pieces of legislation that you have to account for, basic principles about fairness about gratitude that you have to know about um, such that that answer is actually the right answer. But the price of it, the price of admission is just you have to take the jurist as being authoritative. <laughs> yeah. Well, you gave one example in the paper of like a question that was unanswerable as well, which I thought was really interesting. Well, one of the things that is interesting about this is that sitting alongside of these jurists are other expert people, especially rhetoricians. And rhetoricians have this uh, combative, argumentative culture where you stand up and you give speeches extemporaneously on particular topics. And then someone else comes up and gives a dueling extemporaneous speech, all done very beautifully, all done according to a particular pattern. Not only rhetoricians, but also doctors, right? Doctors are going out in public and performing experiments to prove who's the best expert on, say, anatomy. Uh, Galen is very famous for this. He goes out in public and you know pokes a monkey in the neck and shows you it can shows you that it can uh, lose the use of its left arm and then he challenges other people to do it. So there, there are professional cultures of learned men giving public displays in this world. And the jurists want to make sure that everyone knows that they're not them, right? That they're actually doing something serious as opposed to something frivolous. 
And so whenever they get one of these questions that kind of looks a little too much like the rhetoric questions, they fight back. Right? They say, no, 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 this is not what law mm. does. Right? Law, doesn't, law doesn't do rhetoric. Um, law does law. And that's, and that's a process of pushing back against a kind of imagined enemy um, that really conditions the way a lot of this literature reads. So they, they're very keen not to, not, to get, yeah, not to get trapped by someone who's going to ask them a dishonest question. <laughs> well, and, the, the, and what you just said reminded me of a line from, from the end of your paper that I really liked, uh, where you said um, that it sort of, that thinking about responsa helps us like think about a world before law was completely captured by the state. I wonder if you could talk about what you mean by that. One of the things that I, I really find interesting about the Roman world is that there is there's a really underdeveloped bureaucracy. There's not a lot of professionalism. Um, and aside from an army, which is a pretty brute force tool of public order making, um, there's not a lot of ways to govern people. So, so when you do law, you're reliant on private people acting through their goodwill to get the system kind of operating right. What's interesting there is that there's no bureaucratic accountability for these people. Um, if you're a jurist, you simply give the answer. And if people don't like it, that's too bad. Um, you don't have to worry about your election or your promotion or your elevation to the Supreme Court or whether or not you're going to get reversed. You're free to give the answer as you think it should be. Um, the other side of that, though, um, is that it's advisory. That there's actually very little that you can do to force people to get it right uh, at the end of the day. Um, so it creates a legal culture that that is, I think, very different than ours, right? I mean, perhaps in a way, um, the law faculties are analogous to this in that um, in that they're engaged in work frequently that's purely theoretical, and they're free to give their opinion as they see fit, but. But the thing that you're sort of always dealing with is a is a state machinery that actually does declare what law is. Um, there's just there's just a much lesser extent of that in the ancient world. Um, so it creates it creates a space for thinking about problems that's really different, not necessarily better, but but different from the way we do it now. There's no there's not there's a lot less state envy. I would be, be deliberately vague about what I mean by that. <laughs> so, so Ari, in, in closing, your paper focuses primarily on the role of responsa in ancient Rome, but you recognize as well that similar juristic technologies were kind of created and deployed in other ancient legal systems as well. And I wonder if you could just briefly reflect on that. I mean, was that a, do you think that was primarily a function of different legal cultures borrowing from each other, or was it more like an evolutionary convergence of sort of a tool being developed to solve a particular socio-political legal need? I think, I think it's probably not borrowing. Um, there's no reason to think that, that Hindu Brahmin borrowed from Roman jurists or, or vice versa. Um, there's some reason to think that, that 
Jewish rabbis borrowed from Roman jurists, although this is a topic of you know great debate in the academy right now. Um, I think what you really have is that this is this is a a symptom of a pre-modern world in which um, in which states can't always decide through their legislative means what the right answer is. And even if they could, they, they don't always want to. Um, so you begin to evolve groups of experts who l- largely voluntarily and largely in their spare time um, take on this role of how to do it right. And this then enables people to engage in transactions on their own, whether the, muf- the local mufti does it one way and the local mufti somewhere else does it another way. This is fine. Um, within each particular community, you basically know how to do it right. Um, if if uh, in, this is particularly important in worlds in which um, there's there's a lot of emphasis on formal on formal aspects of things, um, and there's not a lot of ways of redoing transactions. So I think they all evolve relatively independently, but I think they're also I think in general a symptom of premodernity. Um, that that kind of authority is stable in pre-modern societies in ways that it isn't in bureaucratized societies of, say, the, the early modern and, and, and later periods. Now, where, now where, that leaves, where that leaves us, right? I mean, if we have state envy now, um, you know, do we want to have pre-modern envy? Uh, I, you know, I don't know that we do. Um, there are a lot of downsides to a system that's fluid like this. Um, in particular, um, it doesn't do much for liberating people who are oppressed. Um, actually, it does nothing for people you know who are who are oppressed. Um, if you're if you're if you're a slave in this world, it is a very bad deal indeed. Um, but it it should make us anxious about some of the choices we've made about about the format that we have now. Excellent. Well, Ari, thanks so much. This has been really fascinating, and I really hope that listeners will check out your your paper as well, because I, I really enjoyed reading it and found it absolutely fascinating. Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
Just when that day is coming Who can say, who can say Our mother has been absent Ever since we found it wrong But there's gonna be a party When the wolf comes home